Uh, we're going to pray. I do want to notice in, uh, you know, we've had a number of changes. I do want to notice that in our uh, recitation of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we are used to trespasses and trespassers. Um, you will notice that this morning it is debts and debtors. Um, so uh, hopefully this is not a major deal, but I uh, want to um, point that out because we, we have a habit here and uh, didn't want anyone to be taken by surprise. So please, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, uh, it is uh, not only um, our practice here, but I want to say our need to punctuate our service with prayer. And so uh, we uh, come to you once again now, uh, Lord, acknowledging uh, our need of you. Uh, Lord, we are um, aware that uh, in this little body, uh, there are folks who couldn't make it to church today. Some of them are infirm. Uh, some of them uh, struggle with uh, other afflictions that have just kept them away. Some are grieving. Uh, Lord, we are particularly mindful of the Bisser family who lost Bonnie recently. We pray for them and their grief, this dear member of our congregation. Uh, and Lord, we, uh, we also acknowledge that for those of us who are here, uh, Lord, we, we are needful. Uh, we, we, we do well to pretty well to clean up on the outside, but uh, many of us come here with heavy hearts. Uh, Lord, with hearts um, that uh, it has become plain we cannot handle on our own. So we lay them before you and ask you again, Lord, to minister to us, to apply the gospel, either for the first time or in a fresh way, Lord, that, that we would know that in Jesus is life and life abundant. And so, Lord, we pray certainly for this congregation. We also want to acknowledge that we are yet one expression uh, in one place uh, as a part of your church. And so we're glad to join with your church here in Santa Fe this morning. Would you bless the other congregations that are meeting even this morning, that they would thrive and be built up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for the church all around the world. Lord, that it would thrive, that the kingdom would, would, would expand, uh, that many would come to know you, that your people would uh, stand as a, as a glorious temple attesting to newness of life in Jesus. Lord, there are many troubles in the world, and you told us that these troubles were, will persist, but you uh, also assured us that, um, that you were with us even to the very end of the age. And so we, we grab onto that this morning, and we thank you that we're a part of that. Uh, so, Lord, bless uh, certainly our mission partners, uh, some, of, some of which are in very troubled places like Cuba. We pray for your Christians who are afflicted uh, in other places like Iran, where the church is thriving, and Egypt, and China, and, Lord, places where um, the gospel is even illegal uh, to share, and yet you, Jesus, attesting to... Um, your tenacity, your love for your people, you were there. And so, Lord, we're in league with them, uh, and we, we thank you for the opportunity to acknowledge that this morning, to pray for them. Uh, Lord, um, not only uh, taking the posture that they need us, but we need them. And so, Lord, uh, we, um, we lay it all before you. We thank you. And then, Lord, we come together as your people, uh, praying this prayer that you have taught us to pray, praying together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, every time the Olympics roll around, you know, every four years or so, uh, something strange happens, happens to me. Uh, I not only become interested in sports uh, that I have no interest in in the intervening four years, but I become an expert in them. You know, I'll be watching the, the, the you know, uh, gymnastics, and I'll be like, oh, you know, they, she, she, she should have stuck the landing there, you know, and, and, and I'll be, you know, I'll comment on a volley player's, volleyball player's dig, you know, or a runner's kick. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take in three minutes of Norwegian badminton and, and, you know, I'll be telling my wife, you know, they're, they're, they're really expected to medal this year. <laughs> but, you know, the actual truth is I know next to nothing about sticking landings or digging volleyballs or runner's kicks or Scandinavian badminton. But, you know, when the Olympics captivates my attention, even the barest exposure and information about it, even, even though I'm objectively an idiot, you know, I'm an expert. And, and I want to say that phenomenon isn't as uncommon as we might imagine, you know, whether it's the man on the street interview, the call-in radio show, the Twitter feed, I think we can safely say we are all experts now. Some guy in New York City can be headed on his way to his shift for making subs at Blimpy and walk by the United Nations and be stopped by a reporter querying him on his views of the conflict in Ukraine, the dangers of nuclear proliferation in the Eastern Bloc, the Fed's latest Fed, you know, interest hike. And not only will he be more than happy to weigh in, they'll put it on TV. Well, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus is once again being confronted. Um, this time about the very serious topic of what happens when you die by those who consider themselves to be experts. Uh, this is not the first time that Jesus comes across, you know, uh, someone considering themselves to be an expert. Just before this, uh, he was confronted by priests and politicians. Uh, the group that we're looking at now this morning, this group called the Sadducees, we might call patricians. Uh, th this was the Jewish uh, priestly aristocracy in this culture. Um, and they come to Jesus with what, you know, at first looks like an insane scenario. Uh, about seven brothers, the oldest of whom got married, died, left no children, and then the second brother married her, died, left no kids, and the same with the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way down to the seventh brother, so that in, in the end, the wife dies with no kids, you know, divide by three, carry the four, um, and, you know, hey, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? But in fact, the question they present is, is not so crazy as it seems, um, because they begin by citing the law of Moses. They're, they're actually referring Jesus to... Uh, a particular part of the law. They're doing a little bit of hypothetical case law here, and they're asking Jesus, according to the law, how would you handle this? Now, the, law's never, the law is cited, but it's never explained, um, so we've got to get into this a little bit uh, because we've got nothing like it in our culture. 
Uh, the law they're referring to is cited in Deuteronomy 25, and it has to do with a practice known as leveret marriage. Uh, this is the part of the law that deals with questions that have to do with uh, inheritance, principally. Uh, when a husband dies without any heirs, you can actually see this law applied uh, in Genesis 38 in the story of Judah and Tamar, and also in the book of Ruth, uh, in the third and fourth chapters of that book, and Ruth and Boaz. And basically, here's how the law was implemented. When a married but childless man dies, his unmarried younger brother is commanded to marry the widow so that the firstborn child is treated as the heir of the deceased brother and not the genetic father. Um, that's what's behind the, the scenario. Childless brothers dying in succession with the widow, widow marrying the next eligible brother so that the family line is maintained, the inheritance is kept in the same family. Um, now, in their scenario, this happens seven times to the same woman who eventually dies childless with no heirs, and then we quickly find out and in fact, the question isn't about relatives and riches. It's a bit of a ruse because what they are doing here is kind of this lawyerly way of getting Jesus to talk about what they really want to talk about, which is the resurrection. And we know that because of verse 18 where we discover um, that they're not actually interested in, in discussing the finer points of a state law. They want to talk about the resurrection. Uh, so notice how they put the question to Jesus. They kind of put the accent on it. So Jesus, in the resurrection, you know, when people rise again, whose wife will she be? Uh, for the seven had her as a wife. And so, you know, in fact, they don't really want to suss this out with Jesus because when it comes to the topic of, of, of the resurrection, their mind's made up. We know that uh, because they are defined as a group. We see this in verse 18. Uh, that they are a group whose fundamental belief is that there is no resurrection. Uh, you know, it's, so, so what's going on here is a little bit like a person from the Flat Earth Society saying, hey, you know, let's talk about, you know, when you're circumnavigating the globe, as if you could do that, um, you know, just so they can kind of tee you up to refute you. So again, Jesus is being tested. He's being trapped. They're attempting to trap him. Now, you know, when you find out, when you read that this is a group of people who denies the resurrection, you know, if you're, if you're kind of familiar with the theological scene today, you might go, well, this is a group of theological liberals. Because, you know, one of the hallmarks of theological liberalism in our day is denial of the resurrection. Uh, but the Sadducees are not liberals. They are theologically and politically very conservative. They're people for whom change, innovation, progress, and disruption were terrifying ideas, things that needed to be shut down. And, and that is, is a big part of their motivation in coming to Jesus. Uh, in fact, just to give you a sense of how kind of conservative they were, this was a group that considered only the first five books of the Bible as authoritative because the other books had only been written in the previous 800 years. Newcomers to the scene. So from their perspective... You know, looking at those first five books, uh, there was no evidence of the resurrection. They took it as a false doctrine. And, you know, and, and it's a big deal to them because Jesus is wildly influential. He represents disruption, uh, and he teaches the resurrection. So, you know, it's a big deal to them. They could have confronted him with anything. 
They could have come with Sabbath. They could have come with food laws, with temple, with worship, with priestly authority. But they come with this because this is their beef with Jesus. So Jesus knows it's not about leveret marriage. Uh, but before he replies, he rebukes them. You might even say he double rebukes them. Uh, he tells them that they understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a much stronger rebuke. He, he goes after, just to put it this way, he goes after that which is ostensibly their area of expertise, the Bible. And he goes after their experience as believers, ostensible believers, in saying they deny the power of God. So, you know, beginning by saying you don't know the scriptures is a bit like saying to a lawyer, you know, you must have skipped class the day they taught law at law school. But it's, you know, it's more than a sick burn. It's significant. And it's deeply so because Jesus, I just want to notice, Jesus goes straight to the Bible. And, and I just want to spend a good amount of time on this because, you know, especially because ours is an age of skepticism when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to its truth, its reliability, um, it, you know, and it's, it's not uncommon, you know, in my experience for people to say things like, you know, I like Jesus, got problems with the Bible. Jesus is great. I've got, I got issues with the Bible. But I want, to, I want to pay attention to how Jesus himself readily, fully, unreservedly runs to, refers to, relies on the Bible. You know, and, and I think that's important because, you know, I'd argue that this bond between the Savior and the Scriptures is so strong, so tightly linked, that, that you really can't say you love Him, you have faith in Him, you trust Him, while at the same time being skeptical about the Bible. Picking and choosing what you'll take and what you'll leave. You know, I can't think of a great analogy, but that's a bit, to me, like saying, you know, I love Itzhak Perlman, per, I love Itzhak Perlman but I'm not a big fan of the violin. Love Baryshnikov, hate ballet. You know, love Picasso, not a big fan of painting. There is a tight link. There's a relationship there. Jesus is just too bound up with God's word. He shows too great an attachment to it for us to sort of try to sever him from it. He, he articulates this relationship with the Bible himself. At the very beginning of his ministry, he's being afflicted by the devil. He quotes the Bible itself about the centrality of the Bible to all of life. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' relationship with the Bible. So when you step back, you know, you see... The scriptures anticipating his coming for thousands of years, announcing his arrival. The scriptures are the first words out of his mouth at the beginning of his ministry. They are the words to which he runs throughout his ministry. They're the last words on his lips on the cross. So it should come as no surprise that Jesus' first assertion to the Sadducees has to do with scriptural authority. Because apart from grounding one's understanding there, we're, we're like the blimpy guy walking by the U.N., we're just bloviating. Now, it's important to say that we all regularly fail to understand the Bible. Um, we, it's important to say we don't know it as well as we might like to. It's important to say we're prone to getting it wrong. It's important to say we can be very skeptical of its claims. 
You know, I, I want to say, if we're honest, we've all had our problems with the Bible. And, you know, if you told me you never struggle with the Bible, you know, I'd honestly ask, have you read it? <laughs> Bible can be very challenging, very difficult, at times hard to believe, tough to apply to our lives. At times you want to throw it across the room. I get that. But see, Jesus isn't con confronting a group honestly wrestling with the Scriptures. He is not talking to a group ignorant of its contents. He is confronting a basic relationship with the Bible. He's confronting a posture. And look, I went to seminary, and I knew within probably a week, maybe less, that while I certainly did feel called and competent to be a pastor, I do not have the chops for biblical scholarship. I mean the real deal, PhDs. This is an area of academia which requires facility in multiple languages, most of them dead, familiarity with thousands of years of biblical interpretation, in-depth understanding of archaeology, systematic theology, biblical theology, hermeneutics, to say nothing of all the contemporary issues and ministerial applications. And yet, you know, with all of that, I think there are really only two postures when it comes to the Bible that apply to everybody. You know, one is to encounter the inevitable and unavoidable deep challenges of the Bible and conclude, you know, the problems with the Bible. The other is to encounter the inevitable and unavoidable deep challenges of the Bible and conclude the problem is not with the Bible, the problem is with me. And it doesn't matter, you know, how learned you are, how well-trained you are, I think that's the fork in the road. Now, the first posture is one that engages the Bible, and when it fails to line up with my convictions, my culture, my sense of the way things ought to be, I just decide that I cannot and I will not believe or embrace the things that it is teaching me. And when we take that posture, you know, I want to say we're revealing two things about ourselves. First, I don't accept the Bible as authoritative, okay? But second, there is another authority that is operative in my life that trumps the Bible. And I am so loyal to that authority that nothing will challenge it, including the Bible. So, so you may not agree with or read, you know, this Bible, but functionally you've got a Bible, and it operates as your authority. That's the posture of the Sadducees. The other posture is to come to the Word of God with a willingness to admit, for starters, that being my, my own authority is a disaster. Because... I know I often get things wrong. I know I lack wisdom, and I am in regular need of challenge. Um, and I know there is a God, and I am not He. Um, so I'm in regular need of challenge, and, and there are challenges I don't readily accept, even, even the challenges I don't re readily accept. It, it's the approach that this is God's Word, and as such, it is utterly reliable whether I can fully understand or embrace it right now or not. And look, I understand, you know, many of us not be, may not be ready to embrace th that idea from a theological standpoint, but, you know, can I ask you to consider it maybe from a relational standpoint? You know, and I'm, I'm just asking you, if you're skeptical toward the Bible, have an open mind to what I'm about to say. <laughs> Open-mindedness is important. Just consider for a minute your closest relationships. Think about the friend, your friends and family in your life who know you really well. You know, how do we often speak about people like that? Well, I don't know about you, but here's how I speak about them, think about them. These are the people who know me better than I know myself. 
And, and what, do, what do we, you know, why do we say that? We say that because these are relationships that bring a perspective from the outside that is needful and true and clarifying and life-giving for me. You know, I can only look out from me. I need people to look onto me. Those are important relationships. And, and how do they do that? Certainly encouraging, building up, affirming. But critically, that is not all they do. You know, any psychologist would tell you that, that the relationship, which is nothing but agreement, nothing but encouragement and affirmation and alignment and happy clappy, never conflicting, never fighting, absent of challenge, pushback, argument, the occasional telling you you're full of it, you know, that is a deeply dysfunctional relationship. Uh, unhealthy, possibly dangerous. That kind of relationship is the dystopian nightmare of the Stepford Wives, if you know that story. Not the stuff of a healthy relationship. We call the Bible God's Word because He speaks to it, speaks to us through it, in it. So that means, for starters, this is not merely the, the you know, reading material. This is relationship material. Understanding that He relates to His people in such a way that He won't allow for that, that kind of dysfunction. He loves human beings too much. He refuses to be nothing more than your refrigerator magnet. You know, your bobblehead, your Stepford wife, your bumper sticker, your motivational, you know, calendar. He just refuses to patronize us like that. Fawning over us with nothing but affirmation, never loving us enough to challenge us, and he refuses to crush you with nothing but challenge, rebuke, and argument. Someone said that all truth with no grace is too hard and all grace with no truth is too soft. And the Lord in his word brings truth and grace. That's the relationship. So the Lord is the supreme friend who speaks, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And he has spoken so that in and through his word, he loves us like we've never been loved, even as he may challenge us like we've never been challenged. So Jesus' first word to the Sadducees is you don't know the Scriptures. Not that they don't know its content. It's, it's, it's like they don't know its character. They don't know that, that, that there's a relational character here, that there's life-giving relationship on offer with God through His Word. And that becomes clear in the second part of the rebuke where they say, you, you know, you deny the, the power of God. Now, this is a distinct challenge, but it's not disconnected from the first part of the rebuke because he's saying that the Scriptures, you know, for you, have lost any sense of potency, any sense of possibility, you know, because it presses you to consider actually possibilities beyond your own powers. And, and with that, Jesus speaks to the biblical reality of the resurrection by showing them, you know, I think two Fundamental truths about the resurrection, that it affects radical transformation and a radical turnaround. Um, now, you know, even though the crazy Leverett marriage scene was a bit of a ruse, Jesus doesn't totally discard with it. You know, they come to Jesus with this scenario in which the central problem was how all this woman's marriages in this life get sorted out in the next. Like, you know, with all these marriages and all these husbands, who's going to be the husband in the resurrection? 
And, and, and Jesus gets at this and, and, and basically says, you know, you're assuming that the most you get out of a resurrection is living after you die. You die, you come to life um, again after you die with the resurrection, and you just got the same old problems. I got all these husbands. You, you had a bunch of husbands in this life, good luck sorting it out in the next. But that is to think of the resurrection as merely resuscitation. And Jesus tells them flatly that this reasoning is the reason you are wrong. I think he says in the end, he reaffirms that you are quite wrong. It's the same reasoning that lies at the heart of why they don't know the Bible, not because they haven't read it, but because they've reduced it only to that which falls into their own powers of comprehension, uh, their own understanding of this life with all its brokenness and its limitations. These are people who approach the Bible as a coroner approaches a cadaver. Something very interesting to examine and study and draw conclusions from, but not something alive, something to relate to. They've denied the power of God. So it, it follows that the most power they're willing to possibly, even possibly attribute to the Lord is that he might have the capacity to get you out of death, but not out of dealing with all the same old problems. Um, and to that, Jesus says, you're just flat wrong. Resurrection isn't just resuscitation, it's transformation. It doesn't merely mean to rise from death. It has to do with receiving new life by the grace and power of God, a life that is completely renewed. And he explains this by saying that in the resurrection, People neither marry nor are given in marriage, but become like angels in heaven. Now, he, he brings marriage into the conversation, and, and there's much to say about this, but it is to say, you know, biblically, from a biblical standpoint, marriage, great a gift as it is, isn't given and received only to be perpetuated in the next life. Marriage, in, a, in that sense, is, it's not the ultimate. Marriage is, is a pointer uh, to something greater uh, beyond itself. It's a preparation so that whether one experiences it personally or is connected to it relationally through a family or a friendship, it points beyond itself. And just a reminder, Jesus is speaking this as a celibate single man. Critically, Jesus says, doesn't say in the, in the, that in the resurrection we become angels. He says we become like them, um, like them in such a way that there will be no need to marry or be given in marriage. Well, why is that? In Ephesians 5, Paul calls marriage a profound mystery. Now, I know for a fact that many people have met the woman I married, and when they see how far out of my league I am, they consider that a profound mystery. But that's not what he's talking about. Paul is saying that marriage is this God-wrought, one-flesh union between a man and a woman that we have that that points beyond itself to a much greater relationship, the relationship between Christ and his church, a relationship that existed before the first human beings were even created. A reflection of that, a pointer to that. So Jesus says, with the resurrection comes transformation. So there's, there's no need to carry on the family line or preserve the family wealth, because in the resurrection, what happens? We, we enter into the family for which we were made. We, we enter into the great wealth of which the wealth in this life that we try to preserve and keep in the family is just like nothing. We enter into and enjoy a transformation of which the relationships and the riches of this life 
are just an anticipation, a glimpse, a, you know, a little sniff. Marriage is a gift, but not the ultimate gift. It isn't a rival. It is an anticipation of that which is far greater. Now, the focus here is on marriage, but, but, but I want to say, you know, Jesus could have applied the transformational resurrection principle to any area of life. Is that which transforms it? You know, he could have applied it to work, to thought, to the arts and the trades, to the sciences, to relationships, to recreation, to the natural world. You know, these are all the glimpses of the glory. And in the resurrection, it's all reified, it's transformed, it's, it's uninterrupted and unbroken by sin. It's all fulfillment without failure or frustration. There's goodness and beauty in what God has done has given us in the here and now, and yet all of it to one degree or another is warped and broken and incomplete and unfulfilled, always a sense that there should be more. And Jesus says it won't be left that way. The Lord leaves none of it untouched or unchanged. He doesn't discard it or destroy it, which is why in the end he will utter the great declaration and not say, behold, I make some things new. He says, no, behold, I make all all things new. And this is true not only because of what God does, but because of who God is. This is really important to see. Jesus doesn't speak of what God's uh, people will one day become without speaking in the same breath of who God has always been. So he explains this by going right to the heart of those first five books of the Bible that the Sadducees claim is their basis of authority. He goes to, not only to those first five books, he goes to kind of one of the real high points of all biblical revelation, the story of Moses at the burning bush. This is where uh, Moses, while tending his sheep in the desert, comes upon a bush that's burning, but not being burned up. And from that fire comes a voice that calls to Moses, tells him to take the sandals off his feet because where he's standing is holy. And for the first time, God introduces himself. He reveals himself to Moses by name, telling him, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Critically, Jesus makes this point. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. He reveals himself not of dead patriarchs, but of living patriarchs, even though they'd been long dead. And Jesus seizes on that self-disclosure of who God has always been as proof of the resurrection. Um, it's like he's saying, you know, if you know anything at all about God, you got to know that. This is how he introduced himself. This is his name. The resurrection, it turns out, isn't just a certain truth. It's a central truth. It's inextricably bound up in the, in the nature of God and the name of God. You know, you, you really learn a lot about people when they introduce themselves, Right? I mean, you find out what they want you to know is most central to who they understand themselves to be. Give anybody 10 minutes after shaking hands, and you will find out. You'll get the profession. You'll get the alma mater. You'll get the marathon time. You'll get the latest acquisition, the dietary habits, the number of children. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's, they are conferring to you identity. Here's the most important thing about me. So when God comes to Moses, he could have introduced himself in any number of ways. He could have said, Moses, I'm the God of the mountains and the oceans. 
I'm the Lord of the lightning and the thunder. I'm, I'm the one who made you and all of humanity. And, and all of it's true. But it's, it's critical to see, to seize on what he says first about himself. And, and that, that we find out that which, if I can put it this way, he wants us to know is most central to himself. Because he chose to introduce himself in this way as the living God who brings life to his people, the God of the resurrection. The God who has bound himself to a people who ought to be dead, but because of their relationship to him, they live. Ours is a world where everything goes from new to old, from shiny to rusty, from functional to broken, from alive to dead. And we're so bound up by the second law of thermodynamics that we might well expect it can't get any better so that whatever problems we have in this life, even if we you know, go so far as to say there's life in the next, it's just sort of carrying on. But the very heart of God's purposes, the very heart of his purpose is that he is life who has overcome death. We grieve the reality of death when it comes, appropriately so. I just led a funeral here yesterday. And I was really in, in, intent to say, you know, we gather to grieve that reality, but we ought not to accept it as good or normal. Death is identified clearly in the Bible as the last enemy, an unwelcome intruder into God's good creation. It lies at the heart of what is wrong with our world and what must be undone. And the Lord has done something about it. And he identifies so closely with it that you cannot know him without knowing that. Some of us imagine we're conquering the world. Others of us feel that we're getting cr always getting crushed by it. But when it comes to death... You can try to delay it. <laughs> you can even try to deny it, but nobody in here is going to defeat it. We need something more than better rules to navigate a successful life or strategies to recover from its afflictions. We need more than resuscitation. We need resurrection. And that, my friends, comes only by the power of God through the person and work of Jesus. Everything is broken, everything is bruised, everything decays, everything dissolves because sin has entered God's good creation and with it death. And to either passively accept this as just the way it is or to arrogantly suppose that we can contend with it on our own is a disaster. But God sent his son Jesus into his good but broken creation, not as an intruder but as a conqueror. He sent him to bring all things in subjection under his feet, even the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death. And Jesus went to the cross to do just that, to die, but not as you and I die, but to endure in his humanity the death that you and I could never endure for us and to conquer death as only he could. He didn't go to the cross merely as an example of love. He went there as a substitute for our life so that we would live by faith in him. On the cross, he was struck by the blow that should have been ours and would have been our eternal undoing and after three days was raised to life, defeating death for those who put their faith in him. Death is coming, but it, is, it no longer has the power to undo us. Not anymore. 
Because at the heart of the person and purpose of God, our eternal king, is resurrection. Amen. We should be dead. We can't power through. We need the power of God. We need Jesus. Would you trust him? He's gone to the deepest grave and ascended to the highest heights. He has gone ahead of us. Listen to his word. Let the Lord love you and challenge you and change you through that word that you would know that we have something better than a resuscitation. He has given us resurrection and giving us his son. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are the God. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can say, you know, as we said yesterday when we gathered to commemorate the life of a saint of yours who has gone to be home with, with you, that you are her God. I know that many of us could name those who have gone ahead of us, who have put their faith in you. You're their God, and you're our God. So, Lord, thank you for um, the gift of life. Thank you that you, um, you have given that to us by grace. And, Lord, I pray that as we come to this table, that you would attend to us here, that we would eat and drink in the hope of that, 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 that we would see as central to this meal, in fact, life. That as we eat and drink, um, we would be proclaiming that our confession would be that my life is in Jesus, that you are our authority, and that you are a kindly authority, full of grace and truth, tender, challenging, loving us to the very end, even beyond our days, our short days on, in this life. So Lord, um, attend to your people here. Uh, feed us at this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.